Our text is found in 2 Corinthians 1, but we will come to it a bit later in the sermon. We're looking at the matter of community, specifically the practices that build and sustain community. As we've seen, Christian practices are based, rooted, or they should be, in Christian theology. That's what should identify them as Christian practices. One writer put it this way, The Christian drama is an ongoing drama performed by a people who live in a wide variety of times and places. And we should pay attention with all the critical tools at our disposal to the crucial difference between telling a story differently and telling a different story. In our lives and in our living, we are to be telling and living out the Christian story. That should be what directs our living. But we should recognize that we should recognize that the practices that we are examining in many cases have been lifted out of their theological context. They live in categories quite foreign to Christianity. That is to say, these practices, in fact, may, in certain circumstances, tell a different story than the one that is to be found in the Christian community. Many Christian practices carry with them today, we saw this last week, a kind of sentimental luggage with them. I guess baggage is a better word than luggage. I've been traveling. Um... One writer put it this way, and I quoted this last week, a sentimental capitulation has come to characterize a dying Christianity, believing that we have nothing distinctive to offer to our modern or postmodern democratic capitalistic world. The church simply hangs on to Christian language, but refuses to live out a genuine alternative. As a result, sentimental practices simply lack any real substance. There must be theology and practice. They are not to be separate or to be separated. There should not be practice-free theory, and there should not be theory-neutral practice. I think this is what we find in sentimentality. Thus far in this series, we've been looking at the Christian practice of gratitude. Today, we will begin looking at making or keeping promises as a Christian practice. Christine, Christine Pohl, who has written about this, notes, In the scriptures we can readily see the connection between the practices of promising and gratitude. Thanksgiving is both an act of fidelity and a response to fidelity. Based on God's covenantal promises and faithfulness in the past, the people of God are able to look into an uncertain future with hope, trust, and gratitude. But let's back up a little bit. And let's just see where we are culturally and how we view promises. Stop and think a minute. You can keep your eyes open, but you can close them if it will help. And consider the TV commercials you've seen this past week. And consider these brand names. Pledge. Ensure. Promise. Depends. Fidelity. When we hear those words, we tend to think in terms of the products and the images of the commercials that we see. But are these not, in fact, words that are supposed to speak of promise and promise-keeping? Our moral vocabulary in this culture related to fidelity and promising has been so trivialized 
These words are to have great importance in both a theological and a philosophic tradition. But instead, as Christine Pohl puts it, the continual hype of advertising has resulted in a culture that is jaded about making and keeping promises. I must confess that of that list, it was pledged that got me because immediately I thought of what you spray on wood. I, I didn't think of, oh yes, a promise, a pledge that you make. When commercials for diet plans or detergents, to mention only two, make incredible promises, mostly we know better than to believe them. We laugh when politicians make impossible promises to whatever constituency they are courting. And by the way, we have an election coming up the 21st here, which we will elect a new mayor and a new council person for this district. Our legal system is viewed as a complex way of getting out of promises, whether marriage vows or refrigerator warranties, to mention only two. We may not ordinarily think of the connection between Christian practices and our faithfulness to certain promises and people. But if we recognize that Christian practices are rooted in Christian theology, then we should stop and realize that the God that we worship and serve is one who has made promises to us, who lives in a covenantal relationship with us, who is faithful even when we are unfaithful. Promise-making, promise-keeping, fidelity, commitment are central to how we are to relate to God and how God relates to us. We live by faith, or we are supposed to, in a God whose character is steadfast and constant love. So it should not surprise us that making promises and keeping promises are at the heart of what is best in human relationships. Promises provide the moral framework for everyday relationship and everyday community life. They are, if you wish, the hidden supports that keep things together. As it is with most supports in a house, you don't notice them, they're behind the walls, but they are the things that keep things together. We might not think that promises are that important until they are broken. And when communities and relationships collapse, then we recognize the importance of promises. By the way, in the same way that we may not think gratitude is important for building and sustaining community until we see ingratitude, in the same way I think promise-making and promise-keeping, we may not think important until people break their promises. So where do we start? Where should we start when we look at the matter of promises and building community? Well, let's start with this. We are people of the promise. Here we find the theology that supports our practice. We are the people of God, and this makes us the people of the promise. When we read the scriptures, which are the revelation of who God is, what we find is that God is one who makes and keeps his promises. I've chosen 2 Corinthians 1.20 as our text. In fact, I could have chosen any number of texts throughout Scripture because this is fundamental to who God is. But if you would, if you look at verse number 20, 
for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. This is a wonderful picture of who Jesus Christ is. He is, in fact, the fulfillment of all of God's promises. God has made promises, and God keeps his promises, and he has kept them in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible is full of statements regarding God and his promises. The biblical story is a long account of promises, covenants, and God's faithfulness. In creation, with Noah, with Abraham and Sarah, with Isaac, with Jacob, with Moses, and we could go on and on, we see God making promises and fulfilling his promises. His covenants are made and renewed and extended over generations. When Israel, the people of God, the people of the promise, reached the promised land, notice, promised land, they were reminded to remain faithful to God, their covenantal response to his faithfulness. This is found in Deuteronomy chapter 7. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. In Luke 24:44, this is the first Easter evening when Jesus appeared to his disciples. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. In Second Peter, which we studied recently, the language of promises is, comes up time and time again in chapter 1. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. It's interesting that in Second Peter, even those who do not believe, those who are unbelievers or non-believers, speak in terms of the promise. This is found in chapter 3. First of all, you must understand that in the last day, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. They deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. Peter responds to unbelievers or non-believers by speaking of promise. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. And then later on, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. I must remind you that the last words in the Gospel of Matthew is a promise. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. In Hebrews 13.5, the author quotes from the Old Testament, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I find it interesting, as I was preparing for this, um, I used different translations, and the NIV 
they say that this comes from Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6. The ESV says that it actually comes from Joshua 1.5. It could come from either passage because, in fact, we find this promise made time and time again where God promises never to leave us or to forsake us. We are His people. He is the one who makes and keeps His promises. Thus, we are to be people who make and keep promises. Okay, that's where we begin. Let's go from there. What are we doing when we make and keep promises? Well, when we make a promise, we voluntarily obligate ourselves to perform some future action. Please keep that in mind. That a promise is viewed to the future. In doing so, one writer puts it, we reach into an uncertain and unpredictable future with, some, with the intention of binding ourselves to someone or something. It is our intention, present tense, that shapes or affects the future. And so it is a promise that connects where we are right now to where we will be or where somebody else will be in the future. A promise connects the future with the present. But it's more than that. One writer put it, to give my word is to place a part of myself or something that belongs to me into another person's keeping. This is my promise. This is my word. This is a part of me that I give to you with regard to the future. This means that by definition, by definition, making or keeping a promise is a relational activity. It involves a relationship. We make and depend on promises because we find it hard to live and love without some assurances. We need some assurance. And therefore, promises are not sort of icing on the cake. They are, in fact, if you wish, the meat and potatoes of life. They are the things that sustain us. We need promises. We need assurances. Promise, in fact, brings stability to our everyday life. If we haven't made a promise, or if we don't take seriously the ones we have made, it seems much easier to move on and to do something else, particularly when difficulties arise. In situations where we have given our word or made some commitment, even when things are very hard, we are more likely to stay because we have given our word. A promise says, I don't know what is going to happen tomorrow, or in a year from now, or ten years from now. But I make this pledge, I make this promise now. Now one might say, well, tomorrow things may change. And yes, I don't know what the future is. The future is unpredictable. But by God's grace, I'm able to face the future because of promises. And not only God's promises, but the promises that I make and the promises that other people make to me. To make a promise involves recognizing that under most circumstances, I need to keep the promise that I have made. If a promise is taken seriously, if we take it seriously, it carries with it some of the force of an action. It's more than simply words. It is the beginning of an action. I have promised something, and therefore the action in some real sense has already begun, because I have said that I would do something. By the way, just... So we're clear about something. We can, in fact, 
make promises and commitments without saying the words, I promise or I commit. Sometimes I think in our culture, oftentimes when we say, I promise, it's, it doesn't mean promise, it's sort of to emphasize something. Particularly when you're kids, you know, kids like, I promise. You know, it really happened. So it's not a promise in the sense of a commitment, but rather to emphasize the truth of something. Let's also be clear that promising is bidirectional. That is, you have the one person making the promise, we will call the promisor, and the person who is receiving the promise, we will call the promisee. I think that's actually legal language, but just so we're clear about things. On some level, there is the expectation that if a promise cannot be kept, the promisee recognizes the uncertainty of the future. Again, by God's grace, when a promise is made, we have the expectation that it will be kept. But as the one to whom a promise is made, I know that no one can tell what will happen in the future. And so if someone says to me, I'll have lunch with you tomorrow, but then they end up in the hospital, you know, I shouldn't stand there saying, well, what's the deal with that? You made a promise, you need to keep your promise. In fact, you did not know that you would end up in the hospital. And so as the one to whom the promise has been made, I should understand that. And I think Jesus touches on this in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the section on oaths and swearing. Uh, this is in Matthew 5. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill it to the Lord, or fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. See, oftentimes we think if, if we swear something, if we promise something, that will make it happen. And that's not what a promise does. God is in charge of the future, not me. And by swearing by heaven or by God or by the temple, Somehow I think, well, because I've sworn, therefore it must happen. No. And as the one making the promise, or as the one receiving the promise, I need to recognize that God alone controls the future. And I should have a certain understanding that if someone has made a promise that they're not able to fulfill, well, we are not God, we do not know the future. The future is in God's hands. And to imagine that we can control it by making promises can be presumptuous. Uh, James touches on this as well in his epistle. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year here, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is in your, you boast in your arrogant schemes, all such evil boast, or all such boasting is evil. Just a side note on different kinds of promises. We make promises in different ways. There are some formal promises, these we would call vows, oaths, or covenants. Some are informal. This is mostly what we do, I think, sort of everyday interactions. There are explicit promises in which we spell out, this is what I'm going to do. But there are also promises that are implicit. We don't say them out loud, they're not spelled out, 
But the expectations are set up by what we have previously said or done. I think both kind of promises are important and they weave the fabric of everyday life in relationships, but particularly in community. By the way, there are some churches that have what are called church covenants that members are to sign. These are explicit promises that you will be at church uh, with regard to giving to church, various activities. Um, If you know anything about us at all at Melrose, we go by the implicit route. Uh, We do not have explicit promises, but there is an implicit understanding that these are the things that you will do as one who belongs to this congregation. But in either case, we are to keep our promises, even in the face of difficulties. Listen to what David writes in his psalm. It's it's a brief uh, five-verse psalm, and there's one line that I want you to hear, but listen as I read. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent, or who may live on your holy mountain, the one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from the heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor, and casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person, but honors those who fear the Lord. This is the part I want you to hear. Who keeps an oath even when it hurts, and does not change their mind who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. I love what David says, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind. The Bible has a lot to say about vows, keeping a vow, particularly with regard to God, making a vow to God. The entire chapter of Numbers 30 are the regulations regarding vows. It begins, Moses said to the heads of the tribes of Israel, this is what the Lord commands. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but he must do everything he said. The teacher writes in Ecclesiastes, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Having said that, we need to recognize that not all promises are good. We can promise, usually in the form of a threat, to do harm to someone. Or we can, in fact, make a commitment to a group or an ideology whose purpose, it seems, is destructive. Such promises are not good. Okay, I said that we were people of the promise Let me amend that to say we are people of the covenant. In scripture, we find that promises and covenants are closely connected. But today, I would say we culturally are more likely to connect promises with contracts. We tend to think more contractually than we do covenantally. What's the difference? Well, I would argue that contracts have built into them thus into a promise, how we view promises, the possibility of breaking it. You can break a contract. And there may be consequences that are spelled out in the contract, but you can still break it. And so we sign contracts for major purchases, for employment, for goods, for services. 
And built into these contracts is the potential to break them. This may work if you're buying a refrigerator or a car. But it is not an adequate framework for structuring the most important parts of our lives, that is relationships and community. When we think about promises as, co- as covenants, we tend to locate our promises in a larger story, and there is, in fact, mutual accountability. It isn't simply a piece of paper that I've signed. There's a much larger story that I'm a part of. A covenantal understanding of promising reflects a set of shared commitments. It rarely has exit clauses. Contracts, on the other hand, purposely, this, this is done on purpose, define the relationship in very narrow terms. Once the obligations have been fulfilled, that's it. The contract has been fulfilled. The exchange is complete. It is finished. Covenants tend to be comprehensive in ways that contracts are not. In a covenant, relationships are extended and they are deepened. In a contract, they are narrowed and then they are terminated. Take marriage as an example. Historically, the Christian practice, and therefore the theology of marriage, has viewed marriage as a covenant that involves the couple, their families, the congregation, and the triune God. While it is possible that a marriage covenant can be damaged beyond repair, there are clear expectations of lifelong fidelity and mutual responsibility till death us do part. In marriage contracts, on the other hand, the economic dimensions of the relationship are what are given the priority. What property belongs to each individual and which one or the other will take if the marriage should dissolve, who gets what? In a contractual understanding of marriage, if one or the other partner does not deliver if you wish, does not deliver the goods, the arrangement can be dissolved. Living when and where we do, we see ourselves as consumers, and therefore we think contractually. We think of ourselves as consumers, and the customer is always right, and I have my rights, and if you don't deliver, then this is over. If we bring this orientation, this thinking to community and other relationships, it changes how we view relationships. A consumer mindset means that commitments are limited and oriented around fulfilling my personal needs. It's all about me rather than the community. This is not helpful to building a sustaining community. When the individual is seen as the customer, and he or she believes that they are not getting what they deserve, then they feel that they should leave. And they will look for another relationship or another community. And so we see this in the church. I see it in the university. You may see it where you are. Everything is now driven trying to please the customer. Students are no longer seen as people who come to the university to learn and to grow, but they are the customer. And so you've got to make sure they're happy and make sure that your cafeteria has better food than the one down the street. 
and that you have well, goes on and on and churches feel the same burden that if we do not entertain people if we don't please them then they may go somewhere else let's not think in terms of contract we are people of the covenant lastly we'll continue this next week but we need to realize that making and keeping promises is countercultural, living when and where we do while we might agree that making and keeping promises are important to human relationships and community what we find in contemporary life is that there are significant challenges to the making and keeping of promises let me mention a few first of all the notion that we need to keep our options open our culture places a premium on individual choice and freedom. We have the capacity to choose anything that we want. Christine Pohl writes this, We cherish the nearly unlimited choices we have about many things, and we like to keep our options open. But see, when you make a promise then suddenly you're closing off the door to other possibilities or other options. This can be true of marriage, buying a house, buying an article of clothing, or even the church that you attend. In this culture, we hesitate to make final decisions because something better might be right around the corner. And so... Our culture does not encourage us to make commitments or promises because if you make a promise, before you know it, you might turn around and something better is there and you've made a promise. Of course, again, in our culture, promises aren't seen as that important and so you break that promise and go somewhere else. Uh, Paul mentions this in her uh, in her book, she, she thought that with technology, particularly cell phones and texting, that this has sort of reinforced this notion and in the same time degraded friendships. She talked about this woman who had a group of 20-something friends, their age, not the number of friends, and every Friday night, you know, they'd be texting each other, you know, before, as Friday would draw near, about what they were going to do. And it seemed that everyone was waiting for the very last minute before they would commit because something better might come along. Well, on the one hand, you might say that's great because of technology, we have all these choices. But what does that say about me as a friend if you don't want to commit to me because something better might come along? I, I can guarantee you something better will come along. What does that say about how you view me as a friend? Spontaneity can be great, but so can commitment. You could easily get the impression, Paul writes, that each friend is waiting to make sure that he or she has the full range of options laid out. I'm sure none of you ever do this, but you go to a restaurant and you order you with people, and why is it that what somebody else orders looks so much better than what you ordered? And so you want to taste what they have because you can't send the food back. Yeah. Paul writes ironically continually having opportunities to choose among an endless array of options is not necessarily what is best for us in our finiteness closing off some options can actually be a blessing 
This focus on multiple options can undermine the building and sustaining of a community. We need to make a commitment, we need to make a promise, and know that in fact there may be something better out there, but this is where I have made my stand. Also culturally, we have an intense distrust of institutions. We are wary, wary of important, maybe weary as well, of important institutions or people in leadership. And so fidelity, faithfulness, promising seems very difficult. When we don't trust people in authority in government, in corporations, in schools, in churches, because we question their motives, we're always looking for the subtext. I know what you said, but what did you really mean? Then we come to believe that whatever promises we make to them, we don't really have to keep because they're really not trustworthy. Because they've really got something up. They're, they're up to something. They've said this, but there's something else there. And so whatever promise I've made to them, I feel like I have the right to take back uh, as easily as I've made the promise. Thirdly, I think in our culture, we are very utilitarian. That is, we think whatever works for me, that's where I'm going to go. This ties in with seeing ourselves as a consumer. We tend to be pragmatic and utilitarian when it comes to making choices. And even when it comes to making moral choices. So people will ask, well, which action will have the best result? Will it work? What's the bottom line? This shift in ethical thinking, because this, this has affected not simply people buying things, it also affects how they view what is morally correct. Because they may in fact make a moral promise in a moral context and then break it because they think there's something better over here. It affects how we view promising. Stop and think a moment. If you make a choice or a decision based on which action produces more good. Why wouldn't you break that promise if in by doing so you could do something better? That is, you say, I make this pledge because I want to perform something that is good. But then you look around and you say, well, I'm going to break this promise I've made because I can do something better. Such an approach or such a way of thinking undermines the whole practice of promising. And it makes it difficult to sustain the commitments and relations necessary to community. John Rawls, a philosopher, argues that there are many reasons people don't keep promises. But among them, there isn't the one on the general utilitarian grounds. The promise truly thought his action, the promisor, truly thought his action best on the whole. That is, when people break promises today, I think for the most part they don't think, well, I want to be a bad person. I want to be a person who is untrustworthy. I want to be a person whose word cannot be trusted. No. They break their promises because there's something better down the road. But if you think a minute, if a person in breaking a promise simply says that he or, he, he or she thought that the overall thing would be better if they broke their promise, then what do they mean when they use the word promise? In a related moral vein, uh, P.D. James in her Murder Mysteries 
um, finds that in every case, the person who commits the murder thinks they are doing a good thing. Her murderers are good people. And they think that they're actually doing something good. There will be a greater good that will come out by them killing this person. Well, we would say, well, I would never do that. I would never murder someone. No, but might we break our promises because we think it's for a greater good? This is the culture we live in. But we are people of the promise. We are people of the covenant. And we must understand that the call to make and keep promises is to be a reflection it is to show in us a reflection of who God is, the one who makes and keeps promises. By the way, we will talk about this next week, the Lord willing. If I were to ask you which is more important, making a promise or keeping a promise, I think we would tend to say keeping a promise. After all, we had the group promise keepers, not promise makers. What I hope to argue next week is it is more important to make a promise. Now, keeping a promise is important. I'm not saying you should break your promises. But I think making a promise is far more important than we, than we recognize because it's what connects the present to the future. It's what binds communities together. But the Lord willing, we will look at that next week. In conclusion, we are the body of Christ. We must look to those Christian practices based on biblical teachings that build and sustain the church. We've looked at gratitude, and today we've looked at promise-making and keeping. We are God's people. We are people of the promise. We are people of the covenant who live in a culture that uses such words for products like diapers. How is this to be taken seriously? As God's people, we must do so. We must engage in Christian practices based on biblical teaching. Let's pray together. Our Father, some of us look back with longing to a time when in this country it was said that a person's word was their bond. A person was as good as his or her word. But we are not to be sentimental about such things. We are your people. The ones you have called to be your own. We are to reflect you, the one who has made and who keeps his promises living in a culture that takes such things very lightly, that sees us more as customers and consumers, that thinks contractually rather than covenantally, we have our work cut out for us. Help us to see today who you are and who you've called us to be. And what this involves in our everyday lives, in our homes, in our marriages, at work, but particularly here at the church on Melrose. 
with our explicit as well as our implicit promises, we can build and sustain community in this place. Again on this day, we think of our mothers and we thank you for them. Those who have given us life and have taught us so much. What wonderful gifts they are to us. And now as we leave this place, we pray that your grace and your spirit would go with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.